The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, coming to you from the studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. We're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. You can reach the show at uh, Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com and like us on the Boomer Generation Radio page on Facebook. We'll be podcasting as usual. We podcast all of our shows on uh, my own website, www.jewishsacredaging.com. And that brings you up to date. And uh, right after this message from our friends at Kendall, we're going to be back with our very, very special guest today, Dr. Rick Moody. So here's a message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our uh, special guest today, uh, Dr. Rick Moody, calling in, I hope, from Colorado. Rick, are you there? Yes, I'm glad to be here. Oh, hi. Okay, we had a little. Must be the air over the mountains that uh, got got and in, in, in messed up the signal there, or else it's the snow. Is it snowing there? Is it, are you getting that? I'm afraid it is. Uh, it's not as bad as uh, you've had it in Washington, New York, and the East Coast, but uh, we get snow from time to time. Well, do us now. a favor here in Philly. Keep the snow there. Okay. It's a pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Rick Moody, Harry Rick Moody, to our, our show again. It's been about three years since um, uh, we last were here, and this is, uh, I thank you again, this is the beginning of our fourth year here on WWDB. So again, Rick, welcome. Uh, Rick uh, comes with a whole career of uh, as an author, a um, speaker, uh, most recently uh, the Vice President and Director of Academic Affairs for AARP, the Editor of Human Values and Aging Newsletter. So uh, lots to talk about. And um, let me begin, if I may, with, uh, first of all, I hope you're healthy and well and the family's okay. That's the most important Couldn't thing. Couldn't be better. Great. Couldn't be better. Delighted. One mm-hmm. of the, one of the uh, anthologies that you put together a couple of years ago, Religion, Spirituality, and Aging, uh, you, you quote uh, the great uh, authority, Mother Jones Magazine, uh, I think, <laughs> uh, <laughs> With a, with a line that says spirituality is the new religion. And this seems to be yes. such an important aspect of baby boomers and this, um, resurgence. And when I go out and speak on, on the Jewish Sacred Aging Project, again, it's the baby boom generation that seems to have been the engine that's driving a lot of this, um, return or resurgence of spirituality within our own aging. What's, what's going on there, uh, uh Rick? Why? I think it's true. Uh, the, the uh, renowned scholar of religion, Wade Clark Roof, uh, some years back, wrote a very good book called The Generation of Seekers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that uh, he was on to something important, and I think that that trend, which is really what you might call the, um, uh, the Catholics call it uh, cafeteria Catholics, that is, you pick those parts of Catholicism that you, you like or agree with and ignore the rest, and 
something similar would be true for Protestants, Jewish people. So I think that that individual choice and also that element of wanting something more, that that is, that is a characteristic of a, a generation of seekers. Uh, and I want to remind our audience that if you want to talk to Rick or ask him a question, uh, the call-in number here at DB is 610-200-8175. That's 610-200-8175. Um, you also, in one of your other books, I think it's the Five Stages of the Soul book, you uh, quote the writer uh, Thomas Moore about aging being um, a spiritual alarm clock, which is an interesting line. What it just can you, can you unpack that for me a little bit? What is that? What does that mean? Oh, I can't I can't completely speak for Thomas Moore, who I greatly admire and whose work to, I recommend to anyone. But it is true that uh, as people move into the second half of life, and let me acknowledge for our listeners that I'm 71 years old myself, so I guess I qualify. Um, the alarm clock of time goes off. Uh, we realize we have less time ahead of us than we had behind us. And um, that may prompt us to think differently, whether it's the, the bucket list or uh, uh, getting serious, whatever it may be. Uh, so I think in that sense, uh, as more boomers are aging, it's natural to expect that alarm clock to go off. That doesn't mean that they're all going to become suddenly religious or spiritual or interested in these questions of meaning. Uh, that varies. Uh, it's highly individual. And I guess if there's one message that I'd like to give to our listeners about uh, boomers, it's, uh, it can be summed up in two words, three words. It all depends. It all depends. In other words, the boomer, don't overgeneralize about boomers. Uh, people uh, think, you know, boomers, they're health conscious. Well, maybe not. Uh, uh, boomers are probably in worse health shape than their parents. Uh, what about politics? Well, maybe not. Uh, Boomers are among the biggest supporters of Donald Trump. They're not all the Woodstock generation. Uh, but there is one generalization that I think we can make. Number one, there's a lot of the boomers, 10,000 turning 65 every day. And number two, they're better educated than previous generations. And better educated means uh, some implications about that uh, cafeteria Catholic approach or finding things out for yourself. And I think in that sense... Spirituality is the new religion does have some some meaning and importance. The um, this idea of the alarm clock um, seems to have indicated or seems to have developed a lot more interest in many people, especially of our generation, about legacy. Um, what do I want to leave? What do I want my children and grandchildren to take with to take with them of me? Are you seeing that? I mean, and, and it seems to be an. I do. I think we do see it. I think that I think that it's it's more of a question than an answer at this point. Uh, but obviously, people of a certain age are going to think about uh, what they leave behind, will and testament. But the thing that I find most interesting, and since this is a, a Jewish-oriented show, if I understand it correctly, no, it's not. And actually, the, the the show before us is. No? But this is kind of like general, okay. yeah. So. All right, well, let me pay particular tribute uh, to uh, Jewish tradition in this respect. Uh, it was medieval Jewish tradition that came up with the idea of the ethical will. And many of our listeners may not have never heard of an ethical will, right. but essentially it's a little bit different from a material or economic will. So you make your will, you decide where you're going to leave your property. An ethical will 
Uh, and as I say, it was invented in medieval Judaism, but it's been revived today. Instead of saying, what do I leave behind materially, we say, what do I want to leave to my children, grandchildren, uh, as a sort of moral or spiritual guidance? What, what have I learned in my life that I think is important to pass along to them? And this is a very different idea. Uh, it's only one of many forms of, let's call it generativity, or the question of what do I leave behind? How do I help others who are coming after me? But I think that that question of generativity or legacy, whatever word we want to give to it, I think that's going to be an increasingly prominent question as boomers grow older. Yeah, I I just got finished a weekend in, for a, a congregation in Michigan, and this came up continually about, um, you know, we, 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 we have enough material things, and now we look – we look out at the horizon. It's sort of like when, when we're 30, that horizon is endless. And when we're 70 or 80 or 90, we yeah. know that that horizon is, a, is finite. And yes, so exactly. uh, it, that occurred to we, – we had these conversations, and it occurred to me personally too, as you're reflecting, that um, the ethical will, uh, the moral – uh, you know, what we want to leave behind about what really counts, what really is important in our life. Your experience, your work, your books, your traveling, your speaking, um, how important as people age out and begin to look really at what's important in their life, does, do, do the relationships in their life become more important? The power of human relationships. I- I think it is important, and it becomes more important, um, because for many people, particularly a very advanced age, I'm not talking somebody like you and me, Richard, 70 years old or so. I'm talking about people in their 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, mobility may be limited. There are ways of compensating for that. Sign up for Facebook, get on the telephone, whatever. But still, mobility may be limited, and that means that uh, relationships from the people who care and the people in your world become that much more important. So I, you know, I spent some years, my wife and I, seven years caring for a dear friend of ours, Larry Morris, who died at the age of 97 in our, in our midst. Uh, and I learned a lot about that from that experience. And one thing Larry told me, actually, quite explicitly, uh, he said, it's important to cultivate relationships with the younger people. And of course, he had, he had done that with us because mm-hmm. we were, you know, 50 years younger than him. But I think that's something people need to think about. Um, No matter who you are, mortality increases with age. And one way to respond to that is to cultivate relationships with younger people. For me, uh, that takes the form of mentoring and connecting with younger people. I try to help the younger people specifically on fundraising and marketing and things that I know a little bit of something about. Uh, other people take different forms. Uh, could be reading stories in schools. Whatever form it takes, um, uh, you don't want to only associate with people your own age. That that doesn't mean you should avoid an age-related uh, re- community. I think there are advantages to uh, age-separated communities, but uh, there's also limits. And uh, so I think people need to think this through and ask themselves, where will I be five or ten years from now? It's this relationship as well as money. (laughs) It's this give what I call the give back syndrome. There there seems to be a point in in many people's lives, and I think we notice it more and more. You know, just as you're saying, 
from our generation who says, I, I need to give back. I want to do something to give back to the world, to give back to the community. Maybe it's part of the legacy thing, Rick. Uh, it, it may be, but I think it is. And it's I not just it volunteering at the church stuffing envelopes. It's really doing something. It's Habitat for Humanity. It's building villages in Nicaragua. It's it's really doing something substantive. At least it t- takes different forms to different people. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, again, the point I made earlier: uh, avoid generalizations about boomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember that they're all very different. But I'll give you one more example that, for personal reasons, is very important to me. I happen to be the the board president of a group called Gray is Green, the National Senior Conservation Corps, and so we spend a lot of time trying to educate. Uh, older people about the environmental challenges that we have as a species on this planet. Uh, That doesn't mean that all older folks are environmentalists, but some are. And my contention, our contention, is that we all, those of us of a certain age, need to realize that we have benefited from being on this earth, fossil fuels, all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And now the question is, what can we do to protect things for those who come later? But again, uh, it'll take different forms for different people. For some, it's philanthropy. For some, it's environmentalism. For some, it's uh, the ethical will. It's lots of different forms. They're all good. They're all valuable. And uh, I might mention in passing that uh, this year, later in this year in August in, in Washington, D.C., we'll be having our eighth National Positive Aging Conference. And we bring together hundreds and hundreds of people from all around the country who are looking for something positive. But again, it differs. For some people, it's health promotion. For others, it's this legacy work. For others, it's lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rhodes Scholar, formerly Elder Hostel, now called Rhodes Scholar. Great program for, uh, for, for people to continue growing. So, again, there are lots of opportunities, uh, lots of positive things. We don't hear enough about that in the media. We usually hear about sort of the disasters and problems. And we need to remember that there's lots of positive things, too. Could you just take a couple seconds and talk a little bit about that positive aging conference and what that organization is and what it's trying to do? Because go ahead. Well, for one thing, it's not exactly an organization. I started this uh, eight years ago when I was at AARP, but it continues now. The Fielding Graduate University in Santa Barbara, California, is the uh, sponsor of it, and I teach there in their Creative Longevity and Wisdom program. Believe it or not, there really is a Creative Longevity nice. and Wisdom program. But but the, the whole point is, and if any of our listeners are interested, they can just send me a message. I'm happy to put them on the, the list to hear more about positive aging. And my email is hrmoody at yahoo.com. That's hrmoody at yahoo.com. But... Um, we're not selling anything. Uh, we're not selling. We're certainly not selling anti-aging medicine, which is something that doesn't really work. I'm sorry to say. But w- what we really try to emphasize is all these directions of growth, whether it's you call it successful aging, productive aging, active aging, many different names for it. But uh, it's all important to compensate for the negative imagery that we get in our advertising, media, and so forth, where old tends to be equated with bad, mm-hmm. and that, that's called ageism, as my former boss, Dr. Robert Butler, called it. Um, we can do better than that, and I think uh, people are looking for something better, something different, so um, I encourage that. So this, the dates for this conference are when? Yes, uh, August 25th to 27th uh, at the uh, Hilton in Washington, D.C., and I'm happy to 
provide any additional information uh, for anybody interested. And that's uh, at your website. Uh, go ahead, say again. Yeah, well, say say to my email address. It's simpler, just hrmoody at yahoo.com, and I'll be glad to send them the information. But uh, we've done this seven times before in different places around the country, in uh, Los Angeles, in Minneapolis, in St. Petersburg, Florida. This is the first time we've done it in Washington, D.C., on the East Coast there. So um, people are looking for something better, something different. You know, I mentioned Rhodes Scholar, which is the new name for Elder Hostel. Uh, Road Scholar is now the largest education travel program in the whole world. 200,000 people go every year. And uh, it's a great way, great opportunity to, to learn, to explore the world, to be connected with people. Um, but I could say the same thing about uh, programs in music and the arts, mm-hmm. uh, about intergenerational programs. I mean, we could go on for hours today about this. There's, there's a lot of good stuff going on. No, it's very exciting. And uh, the, uni- the number of universities... Um that are providing opportunities for uh, advanced learning, continuing education, whatever you want to call it, thousands and thousands and thousands of people taking advantage of it. And um, I know some university towns are actually encouraging building communities associated with universities so that people can – one of our our, our sponsor, Kendall, at at Oberlin, I know at Penn State, I know down in – at Florida Atlantic University in Abacoa near Palm Beach Gardens. There's a huge operation, huge centers. I know people who teach there. We're speaking with Dr. Harry. What? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Harry Rick Moody. Yes. <laughs> That's me. But, but, but Richard, I'm very glad that you mentioned two things. First of all, Kendall. And, uh, I'm not a paid employee or a Well, they're our sponsor, in fact. So, so they're very I know, good. I but they're to not us. sponsoring me. And I go out of my way to say that Kendall represents the benchmark, the the goal, really, the top of the food chain of what retirement communities can be. And uh, so I take my hat off to that. But you, you've pointed to something wider, which is that there are now more than 100 of these uh, what we call college-linked retirement communities mm-hmm. in this country. Oberlin is, is a good example of a, of a splendid one. There's one in uh, uh, Florida as well. Uh, several in Florida and all around the country. And the whole idea is uh, you're living in a college town. Uh, why not uh, take advantage of all those wonderful resources, the concerts, cultural resources? I have to say, and again, I'm a biased uh, source here, I am doing this interview from Boulder, Colorado, where I live, which is the home of the University of Colorado. Colorado right. And in fact, I, later today, I'm going to be visiting the Carillon, which is a college-linked retirement community. It's located right in the middle of the campus. But again, you, you can find there's at least 100 of them. They're growing all around the country, and the Kendall-affiliated ones are among the very best. Well, very that, best. That's a great segue into uh, a little note from uh, one of our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing, and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit Kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio here on WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. We're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. 
And if you want to join the conversation with Dr. Moody, 610-200-8175. That's 610-200-8175. Rick, before we made that little break uh, for uh, Kendall, you – we were talking just about the continuing education and uh, the fact that the Positive Aging Conference is in Washington. It's an election year, they tell me. At least that's what I heard a rumor to that effect. Um, as somebody who really has their pulse on uh, both the political aspect of this, I think, and you, you, you've studied this, you've written so much about aging, answer me this like one of the great mystery questions of life. With with this explosion of longevity in this country – how come we're not getting more of a discussion in the political arena of all these primaries about the real economic challenges facing this country dealing with uh, our generation, um, the generation ahead of us, and even though they don't know it yet, the Gen Xers in their 40s um, about the economics of aging? Why, why so little conversation? I don't have a good answer to that question. Uh, but uh, I will say this, that uh, when we talk about things like Social Security and Medicare, um, and, I, and I have to say I worked very heavily on those issues when I was at AERP. I was not just doing the academic work. Um, there are solutions to the problems that those programs face, both Social Security and Medicare. They're actually not that difficult. Uh, but they do require that people step up to the plate and say, okay, we have to make some changes uh, might be a little painful, but not terrible. And uh, we make the changes, and uh, the programs are okay. Some of that is already happening in Medicare. People don't realize this, but uh, the Affordable Care Act actually extended the uh, life of the Medicare Trust Fund by nine years. So Medicare is in better shape than it was before. Social Security has some problems, but they're not all that serious in the sense that uh, with some modest changes, like we did in 1983 under uh, Ronald Reagan uh, and Tip O'Neill, both sides can come together, make some compromises, uh, increase the revenues, uh, strengthen the program, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, why it is that people don't talk about this, I don't know. People sometimes in the political world prefer oversimplified uh, responses, particularly in elections, uh, oversimplified rather than uh, actually making the changes, which are fairly modest in Social Security and Medicare. When we go beyond that and talk about um, helping people with their income issues, uh, that's a little bit more difficult. And um, one of the things that we've seen, and again, let's talk about the aging boomers, is we've seen uh, pronounced inequality in the aging boomer population. And that's not different from the rest of American society. We've We've seen a general trend towards greater inequality over the last few decades, certainly since you and I were younger, Richard. Mm-hmm. So we have some older people who are actually doing quite well. They're fine. Okay. They have a pension, whatever. And there are others who did not save anything for retirement, and they're very vulnerable. And uh, we're going to see more of that inequality, I'm sorry to say, in years to come. So that really means to me two things. Number one, the people who have a little money need better guidance on how to spend their money so they don't become victims of uh, financial fraud. And again, we're making some moves in that direction. The U.S. Labor Department now has some new regulations uh, enforcing what is called a fiduciary standard for financial advising. Uh, What about the people who 
didn't save or couldn't save for retirement, they may have to work longer. And that raises the question of what will they work at? And I happen to be a big proponent, and I worked on this at AARP, of self-employment and entrepreneurship. And the reason I make that point is because age discrimination is very, very real. And somebody who is 60 years old or 65 or 70 uh, may find it very difficult to get a job, to get employed. Uh, that doesn't mean it's the end of the world, but it does create challenges. So uh, these are complicated questions. They're not easily reduced to a sound bite in an election campaign. Uh, but if I were to summarize it, I would say, yes, we can fix Social Security and Medicare pretty easily. Not a big deal. Uh, no, we do have a big problem with helping people uh, find a sustainable retirement, sustainable, economically sustainable. And we have to do a better job there. And that will require a lot of work. I'm happy to say that my former employer, AARP, is doing some great work on this. And again, I'm not employed by AARP anymore. I'm retired, but I... I'm a big fan of what they do. Have a program called Life Reimagined. Mm -hmm. It's a great name, by the way. Life Reimagined. And uh, Richard Leiter, who was uh, the fellow who dreamed that up, happens to be someone I know personally, has written books about purpose and meaning. And uh, so purpose includes many different things. Some of those kind of philosophical and spiritual things that we talked about earlier, but also on the uh, the everyday level. You know, it was. The Bertolt Brecht, who said, first the bread, then the sermons. Sorry to have to tell you that. I know you're a clergy. No, no, that's clergy true. There's Richard, a, but... there's a, there's actually a phrase in the Talmud that, that's, that's very, very similar to that. Okay. Well, it has Talmudic authority then. No. <laughs> first the bread, then the sermon. So we need to help people get by. And above all, we need to help them help themselves. And that's where I think we're going to need to have a shift in terms of people realizing and they've gotten the message that you know nobody has protected them from uh, you know the challenge of retirement income pension coverage is down it's right. not what it used to be for our parent generation so but again i'm optimistic about this because there are solutions and there's people around and life reimagined is a great example of one where uh, they've pioneered that i'll give one just concrete instance of that life reimagined has now uh, a partnership with uber the uh, you know taxi uh, company, right? Uh, and they're training and helping older people become Uber drivers, part-time Uber drivers. Well, that's a good thing because it's just one of many kinds of uh, employment that people can do, even if they're 60 or 70 years old. Right. So we need to look at those concrete opportunities. In fact, I think in the New York Times, sometime in the last in the month of January, there was a, a fairly good article about that uh, the the training of older drivers for Uber and maybe Lyft yes. as well so that's that's that yes and that's is another example uh, I mean we have uh, we've had a couple of people from Encore on here in the last year um oh, right. the encore.org people and we've also had several people in the last couple of years uh, who really faced this idea of redefining their own job they were either laid off or they chose voluntarily to yeah. leave what they were doing and follow something else. And uh, this seems to be also very part of a part of our generation. This, uh, I think th it is. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you've looked at all of those different dimensions because I'm a huge admirer of, uh, of Encore. I've, I've known Mark Friedman for many years and I've actually been a judge 
in the Encore uh, Purpose Prize. But right. that's the top of the elite, you might say. Those are the, and obviously it's a prize, so they they give it to the most outstanding people who are uh, giving back to the world. At the other end of the spectrum, we have the people who are they can't necessarily think about giving back because they have to think about paying the mortgage and uh, covering their drug costs. And we need to help those people especially. And that's why I, I'm glad to hear that you, you had people on your show who were talking about those challenges because they're serious. Well, that's the thing. I mean, your your comment is, is so well taken about not making a general, you know, just lumping all boomers in one category the uh, and in the income inequality the I, I really, even as late as this last weekend in Ann Arbor, again, try to get the congregation to understand that the social justice issue, I think, for our generation in the next 20 to 30 years is this, what do we call the, econ- what I call the economics of aging, specifically what you're talking about, that there are thousands of millions of, of people who have not had the benefits, benefit of um, pensions or who are struggling and don't have enough money for retirement and are flooding the systems. And um, this is going to – it's a, it's a societal problem, multi-generational problem, not just a, you know, a particular family problem or challenge, however yes, you want to call it. Talk and that's to, why it becomes difficult to talk about aging in generalizations because right. we have to talk about a series of particular things. So good. So I want to follow up on something else you mentioned. Uh, you know, uh, bringing up uh, Dr. Butler, the this the, the concept of ageism in America. Um, you know, other than the Golden Girls, perhaps, or a few movies which attempt to restructure the visual. And I'm a big believer in pop culture and the mes- and the messages that pop culture sends to the rest of the country um, and the AARP magazine's uh, annual movies, movies for adults. Talk to me about movies your pers- grown-ups, 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 right? You know, yeah, I, you're, you're, you're absolutely right about that. The media do have a role in enforcing this kind of thing. And to, to get beyond that, you need to really get, change your head a little bit for, for a lot of folks. Now, I want to uh, pursue that in a sort of a different direction by saying ageism is a problem out there, whether it's in the media or the workplace, but it's also a problem inside our own heads. That is to say, we often internalize these things. I'll just give you one example. When I turned 65, I was uh, I was very happy that I could now qualify for the senior discount. So I <laughs> was at a movie theater and you know I pulled out my I was about to pull out my driver's license and. Uh, the woman behind the desk said, "Oh no, no, you don't need to do that. You clearly qualify." Uh, so, <laughs> and what was your was fir- what was your first reaction? My first reaction was, "Well, wait a minute, I don't, I can't look that old, can I?" Uh, and uh, you know, I'll tell you another story about that. It was kind of funny. I was on a road scholar trip, actually, at Elder Hostel, now called Road Scholar, and uh, my wife and I were having dinner with a couple of uh, uh, Japanese American uh, women. And uh, we got to talking about age, and I uh, said something about my age, which was 70 or 69 at the time. And the woman said, uh, oh, you don't look that old. And I thought to myself, oh, that's pretty good. And then the next instant she said, uh, but then again, Caucasians never do look their age. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm quite serious. This happened. So uh, what happened 
to me in that moment is at the first instance when she said, oh, you don't look your age, I thought, oh, that's pretty good. I guess I'm healthy. And, and the next instant, she took away the compliment. <laughs> so what that was telling me, as well as my uh, case at the, live, at the, uh, mu- the uh, movie theater, was, uh, you know, in myself, I also have this idea that uh, I really, uh, I don't want to look old. I don't want to be old. I want to be forever young. And, you know, it's not going to work uh, for us. We're, we're going to get wrinkles. We're going to get gray hair, most of us. And uh, that may not be a bad thing. And we have to, I think, all of us come to grips with that inner voice uh, that says, you know, I'm really not uh, 71 years old. I'm only uh, 31 years old. Right. Uh, well, it's not true. And uh, so that's, uh, you know... <laughs> It, it's it especially my knee, your knees and your ankles usually are, are uh, very good reminders that you're not 30 years old anymore. But yes, Rick, you, exactly, you, you exactly. you're talking about this and um, and channeling our own inner Bob Dylan song "Forever Young" from the good old days. Talk to me a little bit about your approach. There's a, another article that just appeared yesterday's New York Times. Um, by uh, Jane Brody in the personal health um, column, again, trumpeting the the expansion of research in trying to push back the barriers of aging through scientific research. And you alluded to this, the whole anti-aging medicine industry, which seems to be growing. And on one hand, we have the scientific community trying to crack the genetic code of aging and the moral and ethical questions that deal with that. And then you have this, the, the entrepreneurial anti-aging, you know, rub this cream six times a day and you will be 30 years old again. What, what's your take on this dichotomy? Well, my take is that research is one thing. Um, practical accomplishment, practical tools is something else. I'll give you one example. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when Richard Nixon, uh, 1971, declared the war on cancer. Right. Well, it's been 45 years later. We've had some progress in cancer work, particularly childhood leukemia. For those who haven't uh, read the book uh, or seen the, the TV show, The Emperor of All Maladies, you can. it's an excellent uh, documentary, an excellent book about uh, cancer research. But the reality is that we do not have a cure for cancer. Uh, we do not have a cure for Alzheimer's disease. We don't even really know what causes Alzheimer's disease when all is said and done. Uh, that doesn't mean it's hopeless, but that means that research needs to continue, and that's a good thing. And I am a big admirer of Jane Brody, and she does great work, and she did great work. I know that article very well. Uh, but in the article, uh, you will recall perhaps that uh, she quotes J. Olshansky, who is a colleague right. of mine, somebody who I admire, In Chicago. who warns people that – from Chicago, right. exactly – and he warns people that despite this research, don't buy the stuff that's on the shelf right now or that your doctor may prescribe right? Uh, because uh, it's not only useless but even dangerous. And I will take this opportunity to share with our listeners that I happen to have had three personal friends, three, I can give you their names, who died of cancer after having taken human growth hormone which is one of the most prominent anti-aging drugs out there, hormones out there, human growth hormone. Well, it's called human growth hormone for a very specific reason. It promotes cell growth, including the growth of cancer cells. It has other negative consequences, mm-hmm. too. Uh, our listeners should take away from this uh, conversation and from the Jane Brody article one big headline. There's nothing out there right now 
that can slow, reverse, stop, or fix the process of aging. And if you buy something that claims to do that, you're wasting your money. What's going to happen 10 years from now or in the future? No one can predict. Uh, we simply don't know. Yes, research is going on, but uh, it doesn't have anything right now. And the same is true for Alzheimer's and cancer and things like that. Um, but there are things that you can do, our listeners can do, that are very practical, that can actually contribute to better health and aging. And we know what they are. It's, it's what you're, it's what, uh, and you know this perhaps, Richard, the phrase bobomysa. Right, you know, I'm familiar your with grandmother it. grandmother would tell you. Right. You're familiar with it. Well, it's what your grandmother told you. Get a good night's sleep. Get exercises. Exercise. Eat your vegetables. Uh, that is, eat a good diet. So uh, if you want advice about healthy aging, uh, go to Michael Pollan, who says, eat food, uh, mostly plants, not too much. Very good advice something I try to follow. I try to follow the exercise, the sleep, and all the rest of it. And there are other things that you can do to make yourself a little bit more healthy as you get older. And a lot of those have to do with things that you were talking about, Richard, in terms of social connections and personal relationships. Uh, we now know that even in epidemiological terms, social ties, social links with people who you care about and who care about you, this is, has a huge impact on your health. It's comparable to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day right. when you actually uh, look at the data. So uh, this is, again, something that you can, you can actually do right now. You don't need to wait for uh, chemistry to come up with a solution or genetics. Um, so I would encourage all of our listeners to pay attention to what we know right now, what we can do right now. By all means, the research should continue. We're speaking with Dr. Harry Rick Moody here on Boomer Generation Radio, and we'll be back with uh, Rick right after this message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults, and it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approaches to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back uh, to our final segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We're speaking with Dr. Harry Rick Moody, uh, author, speaker, uh, reigning one of the reigning experts on looking at aging and the impact of our own longevity on our life and our, the life of our society. Rick, uh, in one of your books, uh, Five Stages of the Soul, you talk about various, uh, the search, the struggle, uh, the call, the breakthrough, and the return, stages that the soul goes through in this uh, process. Yes. Could you just walk us through those stages and what they, what they mean and the implications for us, each one of us? Well, I can do it by giving a very simple example. Uh, it's now February, a couple of months after Christmas, but one of the most beloved books of all time, of course, is Charles Dickens' book, The Christmas Carol. And The Christmas Carol, with its central character, Ebenezer Scrooge, is really a story about the five stages of the soul. Uh, he didn't know it. He wrote it 150 years ago. But uh, in fact, what he describes there is what happens to an older person, Scrooge, who's actually what you might call clinically depressed. Uh, Gene Cohn, the, the late psychiatrist, described uh, 
uh, Scrooge in those terms. But what happens to Scrooge in one night is that he goes through five stages, call, search, struggle, breakthrough, and return. What happens? The ghost of Jacob Marley comes to visit him. That's the call. Uh, what happens next? Uh, he searches. Uh, he looks for guidance from many different ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. He engages in a process of life review, you might say. Uh, the struggle comes when he sees his future, and he realizes that, in fact, if he continues living the way he's been living, uh, he's not He's not destined for a good death, you might say. Mm -hmm. uh, and that realization of his own mortality and of the breakthrough, let's call it a spiritual breakthrough. And at that point, to a breakthrough, let's call it a spiritual breakthrough. And, and at that point, he wakes up and realizes that it was all just a dream. Ah, but not just a dream, because what he does the next day at the final end of the novel, Bob Cratchit turns up at his office and he sees Scrooge sitting there uh, but it's not the same old Scrooge, because Scrooge, as Dickens tells us, devotes the rest of his life. He returns, that's that last phase of return, uh, to helping others and making the world better. And if you look at it carefully, you realize that a lot of this pattern is what Joseph Campbell describes in uh, uh, The Hero's Journey. So in a way, what Scrooge was going through, or these stages of the soul, is really something that's available to all of us. You don't have to be a character in a novel. You don't have to be Luke Skywalker. Uh, all of us are the hero, and all of us face those challenges. And yet, the there seems to be with so many people a hesitancy to answer that call, uh, to the, to take that yeah. risk. Um, in my own teaching, True. I always go back to Genesis 12 in this call, the call uh, in Hebrew lech lecha to go forth. And there seems to be this. Um, for many people, this hesitancy to, I know I want to do this, I should be doing this, but yet uh, because of circumstances, I'm too old, I have too many other responsibilities to answer that call. And then they internalize this fear and, and they become, it's self-destructive. There's How do you get the courage to know to answer that call? That's a, Well, two things I would say. First, what we talked about earlier, namely to realize that we've internalized a lot of things that we need to overcome. And uh, that's what I meant when I said that ageism is internalized. People say to themselves, I'm too old. I can't do this. Uh, well, sometimes you have to do something that's a little bit different. Uh, just this year, I've done whitewater rafting, and I've signed up for a mime course. I've never done mime before in my life. Uh, but I thought to myself, well, this is something really different. This will challenge me. So that's the first point, that we need to challenge ourselves and realize that we actually are telling us something that's not true when we say, you're too old for that, it's too late for you. Second point is really what you're doing with this show and our conversation right now. We need to talk about these things more publicly, and we need to have groups of people with whom we can share our, our concerns and our our wish to grow. And that, the second point, having groups, is very, very important because when people are just kind of in their own head, they may lose hope. But if we can connect with others, uh, they can sometimes give us hope. And that's why the social dimension is so very, very important, whether it's a small group of friends or a, within a congregation. And, of course, Judaism has uh, uh, pioneered this whole approach. Reb Zalman Schachter, who was one of my great uh, heroes, uh, developed a, a whole approach to revivifying congregations. 
And again, you, remember that old commercial, you don't have to be Jewish to like Levy's rye bread. Right, right. You don't have to be Jewish to realize that this same process can go on in many different religions. And for people who aren't religious, it needs to go on in another form. But you must connect with people who care and who want to grow. And that's the critical thing. Is part of this spiritual revolution amongst the longevity revolution um, also an attempt to understand and accept one's own aging and thus one's own mortality, this idea of acceptance? Where does this come in in this in this the stages? The stages. I think I think it is. It does have to do with acceptance. But there's a curious thing about acceptance. If I said to you. You know, you mentioned earlier, Richard, about uh, joint problems, uh, arthritis, rheumatism. If I said to somebody, well, you just have to accept this uh, this situation, uh, that could be a kind of a defeating point of view. You know, we have an old joke about the uh, guy goes to the doctor and says, well, my my uh, left knee is giving me all these problems and uh, so forth. And uh, the doctor says, well, it's just age. What can you expect? And the, the patient says, that's funny. My right knee is just as old as the left one, but it has no problems. <laughs> uh, so that joke has a point, which is don't sell yourself short and don't use age as an explanation for all the problems. Try to think it through. Maybe there's an alternative. And uh, acceptance is important, but the other side of it is what is positive. And we've seen this in the hospice program, for example. Uh, many people who go through hospice, and I have some familiarity with this, having been involved in it, uh, will say things like, uh, these conversations or this encounter is the most meaningful in my life. I'm sorry I had to wait so long to do right, it. Right. So there's a positive side to all these things, and that's not just sentimentalism or something like that, but it's a different thing from saying, okay, you have arthritis, you have to accept it and cope with it. With regard to aging, generally, there really are positive things. It's positive opportunities. It's not just negativity that you have to accept. And I think that that idea of this is negative, just accept it, uh, don't expect anything better, that really is part of the problem that we're facing as a society, which is why I put such emphasis on positive aging. One of the positive aspects, I think, of aging, and I'd like your comment on this, is is the, the sense of it at a certain point of our life we understand the necessity of letting go, uh, letting go of regrets of the of living in the land of what if or woulda shoulda coulda, and really embracing the future. Um, this letting go thing, um, I think, is a very very positive and powerful aspect of people. I've seen it happen with people who will tell me, you know, I've just come to the point where I have to let go of all that stuff that's dragging me down and. I can't wait for tomorrow. There's so many things I want to do. Could you just comment on that, this idea of letting go of all that stuff? Those are the people you want to listen to because somebody who says that has actually gone through the process. Uh, and uh, not everybody does. And uh, you know this perfectly well as a, as a rabbi, as a clergyman. Sometimes you have to listen to people and be patient as they go through their process, their complaints even. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are not yet at the point where they can go beyond that. And we can't always, whether as clergy or therapists or whatever, we can't take away people's suffering from them. They have to find their own way beyond it, and and they sometimes do. Um, but for us, 
who are not in the helping professions, clergy, therapy, and so forth, just ordinary people, um, there are some concrete things that we can do. Don't don't encourage gossip, what the Buddhists call uh, bad speech, negative speech. Don't encourage uh, the atmosphere of anger and complaining. This is very important today because right now, 2016, we have a political season in which apparently people on all sides of the political spectrum even if they disagree on many things, Republicans versus Democrats, they all agree about anger. They're all angry and right. unhappy. Uh, well, uh, maybe they have legitimate reasons to complain. Uh, I'm sure that's true. But uh, it's very dangerous to cultivate anger and uh, negativity because pretty soon you're looking for scapegoats and say, well, life would be great if, it on- if only it weren't for... XYZ. Right. And that is usually a blind alley. And we're we're into so, that we yeah. actually we're into that right now because the media keeps telling us how angry we are and um yes. what's very it, it is very very dangerous very very dangerous. It is. And and one of the best things people can do listening to this broadcast is actually if you don't if you don't stop if you don't turn off your TV completely at least tune out the things that are negative because you have to realize that, in a sense, the media operates, whatever form the media is, with disasters, you know, fires and muggings and right. terrible things happening. If it bleeds, it leads. Uh, and, and that's how, if it bleeds, it leads. Now, that's not true of what we're doing right now no, in this but show, <laughs> but it's true generally. If it bleeds, it leads. And there's a reason for that, because a disaster grabs our attention, okay? When we see the lights going round and round on the side of a road, uh, we're going to look. Um, of course we are. But that doesn't mean we have to keep looking. And with regard to financial planning, for example, one of the worst things you can do is to pay too much attention to financial pundits on TV or anywhere else because they're going to make their living really grabbing your attention. And uh, it may be that they're not telling you what you need to hear. Uh, we have uh, just a couple of minutes left. I wanted to saw a whole bunch of things we still, you know, on the. Sure. I wanted to ask you, but one of the things that because it's in the news a lot, and now in the legislation, legislatures of many states, the um, this drive, and I think in many ways driven by the the baby boom generation, to legislate choice in dying. Um, California just legalized this choice in dying. There's five or six states where have it. There's a bill pending in the state of New Jersey where I live. Uh, there's bills been recently introduced in uh, New York and Connecticut and a bunch of other states. What is your pro? I mean, do you think this is part of our generation's desire to since we've con- tried to control everything else? Where now we're going to control even how we die? I think uh, we should recognize some profound illusions that we have, which is the illusion of control, the illusion of we want to be in charge of everything. For people who've really had experience with dying, you realize how unpredictable it is and people, how people change their minds. Uh, I am not in favor of legalizing assisted suicide. I never have been. Um, one of the reasons why I am suspicious of all these moves is because they're, in a sense, easy to do because they don't cost money. Uh, things that do cost money are actually paying for people 
For example, now Medicare is willing to pay for an hour or so of conversations with the doctor about how you want to be treated at the end of life. That's a good thing, as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned, because uh, if you don't pay for the doctors and nurses to do this, uh, you're asking them to work for free, which is not right. So uh, whether we're talking about mandatory reporting of elder abuse or anything else, be very suspicious of programs that sound like they're going to offer you freedom but actually are being offered with no money attached and no services and anything else like that. Uh, we do need to have a lot more support for palliative care, for hospice, for all kinds of things that can make dying better for people. Um, that's going to cost money. It's going to require training. Uh, it's happening, I'm, ha- I'm happy to say. It's going on. It's much better than it was a few years ago. Um, but I don't believe that uh, simply changing the laws without any money is actually going to change people's lives. Um, in Oregon, for example, uh, where they pioneered the uh, assisted suicide legislation, uh, hardly anybody actually takes advantage of it to uh, get the drugs to end their life. Uh, but people like the idea that they have that choice. Correct. Because that's a very American idea. We want to feel like we have choice. Right. Um, anybody who's been in an intensive care unit or in, close to it knows that you're losing a lot of choices in that world. Uh, well, there's a lot of ways to improve people's choices and improve medical care. Unfortunately, they sometimes cost money and require training. So that's my answer to this question. Uh, let's actually change the system. Uh, and it's going to take some time and effort to do that. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Harry Rick Moody, and it's, the email is hrmoody at yahoo.com if you want some more information about the Positive Aging Conference. And, um, Rick, you edit a very interesting newsletter, Human Values and Aging. Uh, we have about two minutes left. If somebody wants to partake of that newsletter, how do they subscribe? I send it to about 10,000 people every month. I'm not selling anything. It's no longer published by AARP. Um, I simply try to cover all the things that deal with positive aging, whatever they may be, not only in America but around the world. And I only send it to people who actually say to me, please, I want to be on your on your subscription list. Otherwise, you don't get it. And if, if somebody wants to, how do they do that? They just send me a message to hrmoody at yahoo.com. I'll send them a sample copy, and if they like what they've got, they can write back to me and say, I like this. Please put me on your list. We have so um, a minute and a half day. left, and in the, in, the, in the newsletter that you just, you just sent out, um, I think it's a good way to end this conversation, and I thank you very, very much for your time and your expertise and, and your challenging remarks. But you do a remembrance of Jim Barron and Lars Tornstrom. Uh, so why don't you just take a minute and in, in honor of their contributions to all of this, uh, just very briefly, who were yes. these people? Yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Richard. I pay great tribute to both these people. I, I knew them both personally. Uh, I knew Jim Barron better than Lars Tornstrom, who was a, was a Swedish uh, gerontologist who developed the idea of gerotranscendence, meaning you can go beyond what you were when you were younger. And uh, that's a great positive opportunity. Jim Beeren developed an approach that he called guided autobiography, which is a way of helping people to write their life story. And uh, I will only say that uh, it was the great Danish novelist, Isak Denison, who uh, she once said, all the sorrows of life are bearable if only we can convert them into a story. 
And all I think, are bearable if only we them to a story. And I thank you for sharing some of your story. And, and the power of an individual story, especially as we get older, is proven every single day. And you're a living example of that. Absolutely. So I want to thank you very much. Absolutely right. And thanks for having me on your show, Richard. You it's take care. It's a pleasure and, to talk to you, whether on the radio or in person. Look forward to look forward to seeing you again and again. And if you want to contact uh, Rick about the Positive Aging Conference, HR Moody at it's H R M O O D Y at yahoo.com. Thank you very much, Rick. Continued success. Take care. Okay. And to all of you, we'll see you Thank next you. week on Boomer Generation Radio Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Take care. Stay safe. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.